Good morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, my name is Matt Randalls, as uh, Dan said, and uh, my wife and I have been coming to Cascade for about a year and a half, about midway through COVID. Uh, it's so nice to be able to see people without masks. I really like that. And uh, it's good to be here today. Do you like mysteries? Do you like mysteries? Yeah? The whole point of a mystery is solving the mystery, right? Getting to the answer. Who done it? What happened? The big reveal. So when you've got a really big mystery story who's, where, where mystery is piled upon mystery, like the TV show Lost back in the day, remember that? And then the mystery isn't actually solved, or it was all just a dream or something. It, it's kind of unsatisfying. But you know what? Real life is full of unexplained mysteries. It's been said that the, uh, the difference between fiction and real life is that fiction has to make sense. You gotta wrap everything up, solve the mystery, tie off those loose ends. That's the way we like it. But in real life, it doesn't always work that way. We don't always get all the answers. Well, today is the second week of Advent, as you know, and we're continuing through the Christmas story told in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll pick, it, pick up the story right where we left off last week. Luke actually begins his Gospel not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. Specifically, how the, the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and announced that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son, John, who would prepare the people of Israel to receive their Messiah. And so now, the story continues, and we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Luke says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Did you know that uh, the Gospel of Luke is the longest of the four Gospels that we have? The Gospel of Matthew has more chapters, but Luke is still longer. It's a thousand word longer in Greek. In fact, it's the longest book in the whole New Testament, and the second longest book in the New Testament is Acts, 
which is the sequel to Luke, written by the same guy. So apparently he had a lot to say. It makes up a quarter of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. Blows my mind. So it's not surprising that Luke includes a whole load of details that aren't found in the other Gospels, like most of the Christmas story that we know and love. It's only in Luke that we see Gabriel appearing to Mary. It's only in Luke that Gabriel also announces the birth of John the Baptist, the story we looked at last week. It's only in Luke that we see Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem for the census, having to stay in the stable, baby Jesus being placed in the manger, the angels appearing to the shepherds. It's all in Luke, and it's only in Luke. Now, even though Luke tells us a lot, we're still left with plenty of questions. You know, when it comes down to it, we're hardly told anything about who Mary is. We know she lives in the town of Nazareth of Galilee, which isn't much to go on because Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It seems pretty insignificant. It's about 100 miles from Jerusalem, and scholars think it was about 15,000 people at the time, but that's about all we know. Mary is pledged to be, a man, to be married to a man named Joseph, who is a son of David, a descendant of David. So already we know more about Joseph than we know about Mary. Does she have brothers or sisters? Who are her parents? We're not told. What's she doing when Gabriel shows up? No idea. We're not given these answers. We're not told everything. Now, the overall theme of our, our Advent season this year at Cascade is making room. And we know about how busy things can get, especially during the holidays. We know all about the endless demands that modern life places on us. And even if we know that Jesus is the reason for the season, that he ought to be at the center of everything, we know how easily it is for him to get crowded out or pushed to the margins. We need to make room. But this morning, I want to focus not just on slowing down or trying to find space to breathe. I want to focus on making room for mystery, for mystery, for making room for our own limitations, being okay with not having all the answers. And this means being willing to trust. And so I want to begin by focusing on Mary's response to Gabriel's news. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. This is great. She is obviously the right woman for the job. And the church has long held up Mary as an exemplar of faith. But you know what? Her response is even more significant than you might think. It's even more profound than it might appear at first glance. Think about this. We know who Jesus is. We know the story. After all, we've got the four Gospels that tell us about his life. We know that he's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. We've heard the stories of his miracles. We spent all this fall going through the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings. We know that Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. Pilate has him tortured and killed. And we also know that he conquers death and rises again. And more than that, we have the whole New Testament, the letters of Paul and Hebrews and James and John and Peter and all this, to explain what this all means, how Jesus is our salvation, how we are united with him 
through baptism. And that just as he was raised, we will also be raised and be with him forever. We have this sure hope. Mary doesn't know any of that. She couldn't see the future. And look at what Gabriel actually told her. You know, it's not a lot. He gives her one single instruction. She's to name her son Jesus. Um, This is the son she wasn't expecting to have. A pregnancy that isn't exactly convenient. One that will be hard to explain to Joseph and maybe everyone else. And then Gabriel says this. And remember, she doesn't know what we know. Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How much does she understand about what this all means? He's given her like this 10,000-foot view of things. He hasn't given her a lot of specifics. It's not a lot to go on. And Gabriel says nothing about what Jesus would ultimately go through, that her son would be betrayed and crucified and ultimately rise from the dead. Does she have any idea what she's getting into? How could she? And yet, how does she respond? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. Mary, this young teenage peasant girl from a no-name town proves to be a woman of great faith. Now, last week, we looked at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and how Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. And Dan did a wonderful job of bringing that story to life. And if you weren't here or you didn't see it, you should go check it out online because it's really great. But I want to highlight a particular aspect of that story once again, because the contrast between Zechariah and Mary is striking. And you know, I don't, I don't ever think I really got it until now. If you recall, Zechariah is this old priest, and he and Elizabeth are childless. And Gabriel appears to him in the temple, and it was Zechariah's big chance to be the one who went into the holy place to burn incense. And Gabriel gives him the news that he and Elizabeth will have a son. And he goes on in quite a lot of detail about what kind of man their son will grow up to be, even saying that he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. In fact, Gabriel tells Zechariah more about John the Baptist, the son he's to have, than Gabriel tells Mary about Jesus. And what is Zechariah's response? He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now, it seems like he's got a point, right? And his question seems innocuous enough, but the angel Gabriel doesn't seem to think so. He strikes him dumb, and he declares that Zechariah won't be able to speak again until his son is born. Now, what was the first thing that Mary said to the angel? She said, when he tells her she's going to have a son, Mary says, How can this be, since I am a virgin? She asks a question, too. But this time, Gabriel answers her. So what's the deal? Why was Zechariah rebuked and Mary was given a straight answer? 
Has this ever bothered you? It's always bothered me. Well, maybe you've got it figured out, but it took me a bit to see it, so let's look a little, little closer at what's going on. Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth are to have a son, and Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? Now, he's in the temple. He's in the holy place, the place where only the priests go. He's burning incense. It's his big moment as a priest. And then, suddenly, someone is there with him in the holy place. He knows it's not just some guy from the village who snuck in through the curtain. This is an angel of the Lord. The angel gives him a message, an astounding message. And Zechariah pretty much thinks to himself, hmm, I don't know. This seems pretty unlikely. And so he says, how can I be sure of this? He's saying, prove it to an angel of God. This isn't a posture of receiving, of acceptance, of submission, of faith. Zechariah, the righteous and respected priest of the Lord, responds completely differently than Mary, the peasant girl. She says, how will this be? Do you see how that's a completely different kind of question? She doesn't doubt what Gabriel says. She asks for an explanation. She asks for clarification. But she doesn't simply doubt. She doesn't say, prove it. And when Gabriel says, basically, God will make it happen, despite the fact that you're a virgin, she says, okay. We live in a society where doubt is a great virtue. And a culture that champions the slogan, question authority, we put that on bumper stickers. <laughs> Accepting something or anything at a word is seen as being a sheep, a follower, naive, a sucker. Now, being discerning is good. Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, is, is good advice because people will try to rip you off, take advantage of you, and scam you. You should not click on every link that comes in your inbox. If you're doing that, stop. Don't believe everything you see or read or come across on the internet. It's not for nothing that Jesus says, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. But this wariness and skepticism and endless doubting, when taken to the extreme, is disastrous. Assuming the worst of everyone and everything all the time is toxic. Assuming that everyone is out to get you, that conspiracies are everywhere, that no one can be trusted, that's a sign of paranoia. It's not healthy. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Talking to Strangers, goes into this in some detail. And he says that rather than always being suspicious of everyone all the time, for society to be healthy and functional, we need to operate on a default of trust. A default of trust. Not suspicion. Not endlessly doubting. Not assuming everyone is malicious and evil and out to get you. No, we need to live our lives in society with each other with trust as kind of the basic go-to mode. Now, it might seem obvious, but when it comes to God and his word to us, it's the same. We need to have a default approach of trust. 
God does have our best interest in mind, and yet how often do we think, what's the catch? God's word, his law, his way, the morality and ethics in the Bible that is spelled out, it's all for our good. But how often do we, we think that he wants to kill our freedom and that what we want, whatever it is, anything and everything, is always good for us regardless of what his word says. And when God says in his word that the, that the wide path of the world leads to destruction, do we tend to say, oh yeah? Oh really? There's a flip side to this too though. As much as our culture says doubt everything and be, suspicion, be suspicious, we also love the idea of having all the answers all the time. Here's what I mean. I recently was watching this spy thriller and it stars the plucky young guy who's super sure of himself and he knows exactly who the mysterious terrorists are and he knows what they're up to and even though he can't prove it, He's absolutely sure he knows what to do about it. Even though he's not in charge, he doesn't have the authority to do what he wants. And his stupid boss is sitting on his hands. So what's he do? He goes behind his boss's back. He does what he thinks he knows must be done because he's got it all figured out. It's, uh, it's Jack Ryan. <laughs> well, two things happen next. His boss finds out and chews him out, and he tells the young guy, you need to do your job, and I'll do mine, and I don't owe you explanations for, any, for really anything because I'm the boss. You need to trust me. Well, what else happens? Of course, it turns out that Jack Ryan is right about everything, and everyone should have been listening to him all along because those are the kinds of stories that Hollywood likes to tell. Stories about the hero who has it all figured out, who was right all along, and who's willing to break the rules and question authority and save the day. We don't like to be told, you're not going to get all the answers. You don't have the right to all the answers. You don't have the right to know everything. Zechariah is more of, a, is more of an American hero than Mary is. Zechariah, who says, prove it. Not Mary, who says, I am the Lord's servant. We are limited people, by definition. That's what it means to be human. We're finite. We're born, we live, we die. We have limited time, limited opportunities, limited resources, limited abilities, and limited understanding. This means we're going to live our lives trusting in something or someone because it's impossible to get it all figured out and that's okay but living with mystery with limitations doesn't mean we're just living in the dark god sent gabriel to mary to let her know what was coming can you imagine if he hadn't sent his angel to her if it just happened that would have been awkward <laughs> But he didn't tell her everything. And that's probably a mercy. Can you imagine knowing everything that's going to happen to you? All of it? Some of it would be wonderful, but some of it would be way too much to handle. We're finite, limited, 
And God knows this. Sometimes, often, it's enough to know what the next step is and take it. Mary trusted God. She believed the word from the angel. Yes, she was troubled when he first appeared. She was scared, it seems. Angels seem to have that effect on people. And she was amazed at the prospect that she would have a child even though she was a virgin, understandably so. But she believed, she accepted Gabriel's word to her, saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And so what was it? Was that it? Was, uh, was this her one big moment to trust in God? And then everything else was a piece of cake. Smooth sailing, no problem from here on out. Of course not. That's not how life works. She had to keep trusting, keep taking the next step. And all along, without ever getting the full story, without ever knowing all that was to come. You know, one of the most important, most helpful, um, most comforting things I've ever learned, and I'm, I'm still learning it, is to trust God with the outcomes. Trust God with the outcomes of, of everything. It's our job to be faithful but it's not our job to make sure everything works out perfectly. We have to trust God for the outcomes. I truly began to learn this lesson when I was a church planter in uh, Montana. I was a pastor out there for nine years in Helena, and we planted Headwaters Covenant Church in 2008. And when you plant a church, the first thing you do is you get assessed by the denomination, the covenant, to see if you're the right kind of person for the job. And then you go to trainings and workshops. You get a huge stack of resources and materials and checklists. And you get a coach and you get money so you can get things off the ground. And then you get to work. And the covenant, our denomination, plants churches really well. We have good methods, good systems, good resources, good people. But you know what? It does not guarantee success. Life isn't about just following a script or checking off the right boxes. And so, for me, church planting proved to be a season of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It was the most wonderful thing and the hardest thing I've ever done. And it was in that season that I really began to learn to trust God for the outcomes because I was so not in control anymore. We did some things really well, and they totally flopped. And I could give you a list of all the ways that I was a very imperfect pastor, and yet we saw God do amazing things. If I had known what I was getting into, would I have done it? I could give you one answer today and a different answer tomorrow. But you know what? God was faithful. He did things I never could have imagined. He's still doing them through that church and through Pastor Seth, who's been their pastor for 10 years now. We need to trust God for the outcomes because we're not in control anyway, no matter how much we want to think otherwise. This means accepting our limits. It means making room for mystery. It means being okay with not having all the answers. And it means trust. What do you need to trust God for right now, today? So often we pray for clarity, right? We pray for understanding. But lots of times we don't get clarity or understanding. God doesn't give us all the answers. 
He didn't give Mary all the answers. And he was entrusting her with perhaps the most important calling in the history of the world. I'd like to end today with a psalm. In Psalm 139, King David captures the contrast between our infinite God and our very finite selves perfectly. Our God is everywhere, inescapable, and utterly trustworthy. There's a part at the end that I was tempted to skip reading, but this is God's word to us, so I'm going to read the whole psalm, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Okay, so here's the deal. There's a mark code. You can either wait <laughs> and I'll bring you back one, then two, or you can read it now. So you can read it now, or you can wait and I'll bring you back two, okay? Okay, I'll be back. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Before an interference in the sound system happens, you know it is going to happen. You have me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do, not I hate, do, not, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's make room for mystery, for our own limitations, for being content with not having all the answers, not being naive or gullible, but having that default of trust that God is for us, God is for you, that we can trust him in his word, that we can trust him for the outcomes of everything. Amen? Amen. Amen.